Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A slithering salesman's miracle cure. A bottle of this liquid could do things that almost defied belief. An intrepid journalist's quest for the truth. He was central to a mystery that gripped the nation. And the heroic response of a town under siege. He breaks away and runs down the street yelling, Get your guns, boys, they're robbing the bank. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Boston, Massachusetts. This city on a hill boasts countless landmarks that chronicle over three centuries of the nation's history. And located on the banks of the Charles River, housed in a replica 1700s cargo ship, the Boston Tea Party Museum celebrates one of America's most iconic moments. Its collection features statues and paintings of revolutionary heroes. But set apart from these gleaming showpieces is one ragged and time-worn artifact. This object is very, very old. It's torn on some sides. You will see engravings on the bottom. As the museum's executive director, Sean Ford, can attest, this object is central to a nation-defining moment that for years was shrouded in mystery. You're looking at the only known surviving piece of evidence the single most important event that led to the American Revolution. What's the real story behind the infamous Boston Tea Party? December 16th, 1773, Boston. Britain's King George is levying heavy new taxes on the American colonies, and his subjects are outraged. The most recent offense is the much-hated tea tax a new law requiring that colonial businesses pay steep fees for all imported tea. Tea at the time in 
1770s was very profitable. 70% of the cargo on the ships was tea. And the tax created great resentment. And few are more resentful than outspoken and renowned politician Sam Adams. Sam Adams was a man of conviction, a great order. He walked into the room and he spoke, people listened. Adams is the leader of the Sons of Liberty, a group that is agitating for independence from Great Britain. In a bid to resist the onerous tea tax, Adams implores dock workers to refuse to unload three tea ships that have recently anchored in the harbor. In response, British authorities place Adams under surveillance and issue workers an ultimatum. Unload the ships by midnight, or troops will be dispatched to carry out the order by force. Desperate to thwart military action, Adams arranges for a gathering at the Old South Meeting House. It became so critical. This was the last chance before the tea could be landed. Something had to happen. But at 5 p.m. that night, the Boston rebels received terrible news. The governor has ordered the tea to be unloaded and the tax to be paid. At that point, the crowd, very angry. Sam Adams stood up and cried, this meeting can do no more to save the country. With efforts to stop the tax a failure, the meeting disperses while Adams stays behind to discuss options. But later that evening, the empty streets of Boston are suddenly flooded by hundreds of men, all dressed in Native American garb. They marched down to Griffin's Wharf, and there they went on to the ships. The men begin dumping hundreds of boxes of tea into the harbor. Attracted by the commotion, bystanders quickly gather along the waterfront to catch a glimpse. There were thousands of people on the shoreline watching this happen. This was an act of treason. They were just in awe and disbelief of what they were witnessing. Then the shadowy figures vanish into the crowd as quickly as they appeared. It seems the tea tax will not be paid after all. There were exactly 340 chests of tea tossed into Boston Harbor and destroyed. And in today's value, that would be about $1.7 million. And one of those chests, one of only two to have survived, is now on display at the Boston Tea Party Museum. In the aftermath of this brazen act, the British are eager to capture the perpetrators. But there's one problem. No one knows who they are. It was at night. They were in disguise. Their faces were pitch black. So to identify them was very, very difficult to do. The most likely suspects, Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty, appear to have a solid alibi. Sam Adams was back at the Old South Meeting House, well underway when the destruction of the tea was happening. So who was responsible for the Boston Tea Party? And how did they manage to keep their mission a secret? As the years pass, the legend of the Boston Tea Party grows, prompting some who were involved to come forward with details of the secretive event. As it turns out, it was Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty after all. In a series of clandestine meetings, it's believed that Adams and his more infamous comrades recruited young, unseasoned volunteers to their cause. 
Most of the participants were merchants.、Uh, they worked as apprentices, so they were less known and probably less likely to be recognized. As an added precaution, the young patriots dressed as Native American warriors. But the question remains: If Adams was under the close scrutiny of the British, how did he manage to flawlessly execute this event? As the story goes, at the meeting in which he seemed to concede defeat, the famed politician was speaking in code. It was that moment that Sam Adams said, "This meeting can do no more to save the country." That was the signal for the patriots to don their Mohawk disguises and march down to Griffin's Wharf to destroy the tea. Adams always publicly denied his involvement. It seems the exact details of his role in this legendary event may forever be shrouded in mystery. What is clear is that this brave act of defiance galvanized the revolutionary movement and set the colonies on the path to independence. Within a year, the first Continental Congress was held, one of the first steps toward the Revolutionary War. The Boston Tea Party. That is the reason why we're independent. If it wasn't for the Tea Party, we may still be under British rule. And this crate on display at the Tea Party Museum in Boston will forever remind us of that shocking incident that sparked a revolution and gave birth to our nation. Founded in 1790, Washington D.C. is the only city to be established by the U.S. Constitution. As the nation's capital, it is also the epicenter of news and newsmakers, all of which is charted by one incredible institution, the museum. Included in the media-related displays are a section of the Berlin Wall, a spy's hollow nickel, and the electric chair from the Lindbergh kidnapping case. But there is also an artifact that tells of one journalist who went far beyond his call of duty. This object is 14 feet long and five feet wide, and the whole thing appears as if it's been through some sort of intense trauma. According to museum curator Carrie Christofferson, this is no ordinary car. This mangled vehicle was central to a mystery that gripped the nation. What part did this car play in one reporter's riveting story of dedication and sacrifice? 1962. Phoenix, Arizona. An ambitious young reporter named Don Bowles joins the staff of the Arizona Republic and quickly makes a name for himself as a determined investigative journalist. He is looking into land fraud and political corruption and makes many connections back to businessmen and politicians. And there's no shortage of stories or corrupt officials to expose. It seems that Arizona at that time may not have entirely lost its wild west、uh, mentality. In 1965, Bowles is rewarded with a Pulitzer Prize nomination for his work, but he doesn't rest on his laurels. He continues his dogged investigations and begins to focus on a growing problem in the state: organized crime. In 1973, he publishes *The Newcomers*. An expose naming 200 mob members with links to legitimate businesses in Arizona. 
Naturally, with his desire to expose truth and injustice, Don made his fair share of enemies within the community. But Bowles is undeterred and keeps up his relentless pursuit of the truth. On June 2nd, 1976, Bowles receives a call from a tipster who claims to have information about a land fraud story. He makes note of the time and place the informant wants to meet, leaves a note for his editor, and is off to pursue his story. The source asks to meet him at the Clarendon House Hotel in downtown Phoenix. But when Bowles arrives, he isn't there. Don doesn't think anything of because that sort of thing happens routinely, so he heads back to his car. He gets behind the wheel of his Datsun 710 and starts the engine. Don starts to pull out of his parking space. But he doesn't make it far. As he's backing out, a massive explosion occurs. The impact was enough to rip a hole through the undercarriage of the car. Don is mortally wounded. Is this an accident, or is someone out to get Don Bowles? June 2nd, 1976, Phoenix, Arizona. While investigating a shady land deal involving state politicians and the mob, reporter Don Bowles is summoned to a meeting with a source. But the tipster never shows. And when Bowles gets back in his car to leave, it suddenly explodes. So is this just a freak accident? Or is someone trying to kill Don Bowles? Within minutes of the explosion, first responders arrive on the scene. Don is badly injured, but conscious. And before he's rushed to the hospital, he's able to give authorities their first clue. He mentions the mafia and says, find John. As doctors fight to save Bowles' life, investigators begin sifting through the debris and examining his car, which is now on display at the museum. The police swiftly realized this was not an accident, that there was a dynamite bomb that has been attached to the underside of his car. This was obviously a well-thought-out, clearly planned attack. Now the police urgently want to know, who is the John that Don Bowles implicated? Sadly, the reporter can't shed any more light on the mystery as he lies in a coma at the hospital. Eleven days later, he succumbs to his wounds. Now it's a murder investigation. Who was responsible and who would be brought to justice? Police soon zero in on the note Bowles left on his desk. 1130, Clarendon House, John Adamson. It's quite clear that that is the time, place, and person that Don was supposed to meet. Police spring into action and search Adamson's home. They find a copy of the Anarchist's Cookbook, which has instructions for bomb making in it, as well as some wires and explosives. It didn't take the police any time at all to connect the dots and make sure he was arrested. But why would Adamson target Bowles? Investigators press the suspect for answers. Ultimately, Adamson is willing to talk as long as he can make a plea bargain wherein he won't face the death penalty. Adamson indicates that he was hired for the job by a local real estate developer named Max Dunlop. But according to Adamson, Dunlop didn't target Bowles for his ongoing pursuit of the land fraud story. Instead, 
the businessman was upset by one of Bull's earlier corruption stories that exposed one of his associates. It seems the murder may have been an act of revenge. Dunlop and another accomplice are arrested and charged in the killing. They're convicted at trial and serve time behind bars. But since Dunlop stridently maintains his innocence, the true motive behind the murder of Don Bowles may remain a mystery. Nevertheless, the intrepid journalist's legacy lives on. After Don Bowles' murder, reporters from across the country came together to continue his probe into political corruption and organized crime. Called the Arizona Project, the resulting series of articles prompts new state legislative efforts to combat illegal activity. And today, Don Bowles Dotson stands as a permanent reminder of this legendary reporter who paid the ultimate price for his commitment to uncovering the truth. A vampire killing kit, shrunken heads, and an African spirit conjuring figurine are just a few of the items on display at the Skepticism at the Center for Inquiry in Amherst, New York, an institution dedicated to the skeptical investigation of the paranormal. But among the cornucopia of eccentric exhibits sits a seemingly prosaic relic. This artifact is about six inches tall. It's rectangular in cross-section, and it contains an amber-colored liquid. According to senior research fellow Joe Nickel, the contents of this bottle were believed to possess almost limitless powers. A bottle of this liquid could do things that almost defied belief. What miraculous substance is preserved inside this small bottle? And how is it linked to a bizarre and hair-raising medical craze that captivated the nation? 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition, better known as the Chicago World's Fair, is in full swing. The whole event there was tremendous. Millions of people came over a six-month period to see the latest inventions and innovation. Amidst the revelry, a Texas cowboy named Clark Stanley is pitching his own remarkable concoction, a liniment made from the juices of real rattlesnakes. He claimed that it was good for any kind of muscle aches, pains, sprains, rheumatism. He even went on to say it was good for lameness, paralysis. He tells onlookers that the powerful ointment is based on an old Native American formula he learned during two years spent under the tutelage of an Indian medicine man. But the real stars of his show are the slithering sidekicks, live rattlesnakes. Everybody knows that rattlesnakes are dangerous, and Clark Stanley was using live snakes, which he processed before their very eyes. Stanley kills and boils the snakes, skims off any resulting oil, and then mixes it with nine other secret ingredients to complete the medicine. He promises the gathered crowd that for a mere 50 cents, this remarkable ointment can be theirs. The whole approach had to be a bit like a carnival show. Stanley's snake oil sells like hotcakes at the fair, and soon a factory is churning out his miracle medicine in bottles like this one. 
In the months to come, Stanley boasts of scores of letters he receives thanking him for his cure-all. He publishes these glowing testimonials in pamphlets distributed around the country. Clark Stanley had an inherent sense of what was needed to market a product. The bigger the claim, the better the product, and the more successful the sales. He reportedly has to kill over 3,000 rattlesnakes a year just to keep up with the demand. Clark Stanley became the self-proclaimed rattlesnake king. But not everyone believes in Stanley's remarkable remedy. It almost seems too good to be true. Soon, some members of the medical community begin to wonder, is Stanley snake oil really the cure-all its inventor claims it to be? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the turn of the 20th century, and a powerful medicine is sweeping the nation. Clark Stanley claims that his snake oil liniment contains the juice of real rattlesnakes and can cure almost any physical ailment, even paralysis. But when critics question his bold pronouncements, people start to wonder, is Stanley's snake oil all it's cracked up to be? Members of the medical community who doubt Stanley's fantastic claims are about to add a powerful weapon to their arsenal. The Pure Food and Drug Act. Passed by Congress in 1906, the new law protects consumers from the countless unregulated and sometimes poisonous patent medicines that are sweeping the nation. Now, if you claim that something cured this or that, that claim could be examined and you could not make false and fraudulent claims anymore under penalty of the law. The government seizes a shipment of Stanley's medicine and submits it to their chemists for testing. The results are shocking. The overwhelming contents of the bottle was simply mineral oil. In fact, 
there is no rattlesnake oil present in the solution. Soon, the scandal forces Clark Stanley's once popular liniment from pharmacy shelves. And it's replaced by a lasting linguistic legacy. The name snake oil becomes the essential term to mean worthless, outrageous concoction. But one question remains. If this miracle medicine was indeed a hoax, how could so many people have claimed to feel its benefits? Was it merely the self-proclaimed rattlesnake king's striking salesmanship? Like all quack medicine, people felt better. Whether it was due to suggestion or whatever, they got better. But it seems there was something more afoot with Stanley's liniment. It turns out that Clark Stanley's snake oil contained an ingredient, capsicum, which did have an effect of providing a soothing warmth to the skin. In fact, this chili pepper extract can be found in muscle rubs on pharmacy shelves today. Ironically, it seems that Stanley's snake oil wasn't entirely worthless after all. And this bottle of snake oil liniment on display at the Skepticeum is a testament to Clark Stanley's persuasiveness and the almost limitless power of a good gimmick. Northfield, Minnesota. Founded in 1855, this old milling town once harnessed the waters of the Cannon River to produce some of the country's finest flour. And today, its charm is preserved in classic Romanesque and Queen Anne-style buildings. And just off the main square sits an institution that celebrates this region's cherished past, the Northfield Historical Society. But deep inside the museum stands an imposing object that played a critical role in the darkest chapter in Northfield's history. Artifact is about seven feet tall, made out of heavy metal. It's got a center piece on it that spins. As executive director Hayes Scriven can attest, this relic stood at the center of an audacious crime that took this sleepy hamlet by surprise. The townspeople had no idea that they were up against professional criminals. What infamous band of outlaws targeted this metal vault door? And did they succeed? Northfield, Minnesota. September 7th, 1876. It's a hot day in this quiet agricultural town of 2000. People had just gotten done with lunch. They were out milling around. But a little after 2 p.m., a local resident named J.S. Allen notices something strange. Three unfamiliar men enter the First National Bank and close the door behind them. That was one of the first signs that something weird was going on here. Back then, they would leave the bank door open because there was no air conditioning. So it was a warm day. They'd they'd open both doors to to get uh, cool air in. Then two more men walk up to the bank and position themselves in front of the entrance. And so that's when J.S. Allen decided to see what was going on in the bank. As he approaches the door, one of the strangers gets agitated. The stranger starts yelling at him and saying, nope, you can't go in, the bank's closed, the bank's closed, you can't come in. Then the man pulls out a revolver. JSL breaks away and runs down the street yelling, get your guns, boys, they're robbing the bank. Inside the bank, the bandits seize a young cashier named Joseph Haywood 
and command him to open the safe. But Haywood refuses. They started dragging him around and saying, you're going to let us in, you're going to let us in. Haywood is the last safeguard of the bank's money, and he knows that if he caves, Northfield will be sunk. And soon, the bandits lose their patience. One of the gang members pistol-whipped Haywood. He fell to the ground. But Haywood still defies the robbers' demands. Worried that law enforcement may be closing in, the gang decides to make a break for it, but not before taking vengeance on the man who foiled their plot. The outlaw pulls out his revolver, puts it to Haywood's head, and pulls the trigger. The courageous bank teller lies dead beside this bank vault door, now on display at the Northfield Historical Society. Haywood knew everybody in town. He knew what these people were saving their money for, what it stood for. That's the reason why he didn't open it up, to protect the hopes and dreams of Northfield. Then the criminals rush out of the bank and straight into a barrage of gunfire. The townspeople really mobilized quickly and were able to pick them off, basically. When the smoke clears, three outlaws have escaped, but two have been shot and killed. Authorities identify the vanquished as Clell Miller and Bill Chadwell, two members of the country's most infamous criminal enterprise, the James Younger Gang, led by none other than the legendary outlaw, Jesse James. But the people of Northfield aren't about to let these ruthless marauders get away with murder. And they launch the largest manhunt in U.S. history. Over a thousand men join in on this pursuit of this outlaw group. Will these notorious bandits be brought to justice? It's September 1876, Northfield, Minnesota. Notorious bank robber Jesse James and his gang have just tried to hold up the first national bank, but they're forced to leave empty-handed when a brave young bank teller dies defending the safe. So, will this vicious band of outlaws finally be brought to justice? As the people of Northfield commence their manhunt, one question is fresh on everyone's mind. Why did this gang target their sleepy town? The James Younger gang had been robbing banks and trains from Missouri, Kansas, all the way over to West Virginia before they came here to, to Minnesota. It seems Minnesota offered the promise of new unsuspecting banks, but their unfamiliarity with the territory will ultimately bring them down. They didn't know the terrain, they didn't know the cities, they didn't know anything. On September 21st, two weeks after the robbery, a young farm boy in neighboring Brown County notices a group of ragged-looking strangers wandering by his family's property. He immediately reports their presence to the authorities, who dispatch a seven-man posse. They ended up getting cornered near Medelia, Minnesota. The younger brothers surrender, and they're arrested and sentenced to prison. Frank and Jesse James are not among the captured and the hunt for the pair keeps them in hiding for three years. But for Jesse, the lure of the criminal life is irresistible. He wants to be back in the spotlight and wants to start another gang. In the end, Jesse is murdered by a member of his new gang, and Frank later turns himself in. Many look at their thwarted attempt on the First National Bank as the trigger that brought about the demise of the James brothers. 
Northfield stopped this reign of terror that the James Younger Gang had been inflicting on the Midwest for over 10 years. And this bank vault door at the Northfield Historical Society stands as a tangible reminder of the bravery of the man who sacrificed his life to protect the town from the most ruthless criminals of the day. Dayton, Ohio. Founded in 1796 and home to the world-famous Wright Brothers, this city is known as the birthplace of aviation. Fittingly, it is also the home of the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. On display are decommissioned thermonuclear bombs, aircrafts from both world wars, sophisticated unmanned drones, and other weapons used to protect the nation from any earthly threat. But one artifact in this collection is linked to an infamous engagement with something out of this world. It's about 40 feet long and has a wingspan of about 40 feet, about 12 feet high. It weighs about eight tons, and it has four 50 caliber machine guns. According to museum curator Jeff Dufort, this jet is connected to an event that some believe defies all rational explanation. I think there were a lot of question marks, a lot of unknowns. What role did an F-94 Starfire play in a terrifying encounter that sent a shockwave of panic through our nation's capital? July 19th, 1952, Washington, D.C. An air traffic controller is monitoring flights in and out of Washington National Airport when he spots something unusual. Seven blips on his radar screen streaking directly towards the city. The controller is mystified. There are no flights scheduled to the area, and these objects are behaving unlike any known aircraft. These radar blips started going at 100, 130 miles an hour, kind of slow, and then they would just zip off at unbelievable speeds. In fact, they're reportedly clocked at over 7,000 miles per hour. Then they vanish. The stunned operator contacts officials at nearby Andrews Air Force Base, who tell him that they too had witnessed something strange in the skies. They said that they saw a huge fiery orange sphere. Then the following weekend, a pilot aboard a commercial flight into Washington faces his own spine-chilling incident. He reported seeing a light that was following him. And then the light zoomed off. When this stunning report reaches the Air Force, they scramble two F-94 Starfire jets, like this one, on display at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. And soon, two fighters take to the sky with authorization to shoot down any strange aircraft. The flight leader is sent toward one set of blips. But when he reaches the area, the skies are clear. He reports that he sees no lights, and he never does. But the second pilot, Lieutenant William Patterson, has a much more harrowing experience. He sees the lights, and then that lights actually come around him. They surrounded him. Lieutenant Patterson acts decisively and chases after them. But as he pushes his jet to maximum speed, the bizarre object suddenly disappears. The next day, the stunning event makes headlines across the country. 
The story of unidentified flying objects over the Capitol and Air Force jets trying to chase them pushed any other stories off the front page. It was the story in the U.S. The panicked public wants to know, what are these bizarre flying objects that have descended upon the nation's capital? It's July, 1952. Air Force fighter jets are scrambled to investigate a series of mysterious aircraft spotted in the skies over Washington, D.C. But when the fighter planes get close, the suspicious objects suddenly disappear. So what are these bizarre aircraft? And could they be from outer space? In the wake of these strange sightings, some speculate that the bizarre flying objects could be alien spacecraft. The public was disturbed and upset, so the Air Force understood that no comment was not going to work. Facing mounting public pressure, the Air Force holds a history-making press conference at the Pentagon. This was the largest and longest Air Force news conference since the end of World War II. Air Force authorities explain that the lights were likely caused by a rather common phenomenon known as temperature inversion. This atmospheric condition causes a layer of warm air to cover a layer of cool air. The resulting air can be so thick it reflects light and radar waves. The radar beams bounce, so objects that are on the ground might appear to be three or four or 5,000 feet in the air. While this explanation seems to calm the jittery nerves of the press, some find the theory of temperature inversion lacking. Just about every day that month in July, there were temperature inversions in the area of Washington, D.C., and yet these lights and the blips were reported only on these nights. Even the radar operators at National Airport questioned the explanation. The radar operators were all pretty adamant about the blips that they were seeing based on their experience were coming off of solid objects. In the following months, still more questions are raised when the staff at Andrews Air Force Base provides a new explanation of what they witnessed. The folks that were in the tower at Andrews that had reported this fiery ball changed their story and they said that it was a star. With the Air Force giving unsatisfying and conflicting explanations, people question if the United States government is willfully withholding the truth in order to maintain calm among the public. While the truth may never be known, some still point to the events in Washington, D.C. as evidence that we have been visited by beings from another world. And this F-94 Starfire jet, on display at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force, reminds us of the mysterious unidentified objects that once descended upon the nation's capital. On the eastern tip of Cape Cod is the charming resort community of Provincetown, Massachusetts, famous for its breathtaking beaches and beautiful harbors. But perched on the waterfront is a reminder of the dark side of this seaside haven, the Witta Pirate Museum. Preserved in its laboratory are salvaged cannons and other weighty relics from the deep. However, according to museum president Barry Clifford, the most precious items here fit in the palm of his hand. They're made out of silver. They were all crafted by hand, weighed the approximate an ounce or a quarter ounce. They're extremely rare and extremely valuable. These small silver discs tell the story of one of the most extraordinary treasure hunts of all time. 
What secrets do these coins reveal about a legendary journey shrouded in mystery? April 26th, 1717. After months of raiding the Caribbean, the notorious pirate Black Sam Bellamy is sailing home to Massachusetts at the helm of his ship, the Witta Galley. Recently hijacked from slavers, it's now the captain's prized possession. And it is rumored to be laden with loot from over 50 captured vessels. 20 to 30,000 pounds sterling was on board the Widow. That's four and a half tons right there. But Bellamy's homecoming is disrupted near Wellfleet, Massachusetts, as the ship sails into the heart of a massive storm. Pounded by 30-foot waves and 70-mile-an-hour winds, the Widow Galley is blown towards the coast. Wind kept driving them ashore and eventually they washed up onto a sandbar and all but eight of the 180 crew killed. Black Sam Bellamy is among the dead. And when the survivors make it to shore, they are captured by authorities and arrested on charges of piracy, a crime that is punishable by death. In a bid to save their lives, the desperate pirates reveal the location of their sunken spoils and claim that it's there for the taking. The news quickly reaches the Massachusetts governor, who sends a salvage agent to recover the widow's loot. But the task is daunting. There were great seas crashing on the wreck and the water was too cold, and so he couldn't salvage the shipwreck. The governor calls off his quest, and as time passes, some begin to doubt if the story of Black Sam Bellamy's vast treasure is really true. That is, until over 260 years later. 1982, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. High school teacher and diver Barry Clifford has long been captivated by tales of the pirates' infamous ship. In my own mind, I was positive that the Widow was there, and I was positive that it had a tremendous amount of treasure on board. Determined to track down the wreck, Clifford scours maritime archives in libraries across Massachusetts until he stumbles upon a critical clue. A weathered map from the year 1717. The map belonged to the salvage agent sent by the governor of Massachusetts to salvage the shipwreck. The antique map marks the location of where the Widda sank near Wellfleet. Can you imagine finding a treasure map? That's what happened. And in November, with this evidence in hand, Clifford persuades a team of underwater explorers to join his quest. I invested all of my money in row on the Cape the next day, looking for the widow. Using the map as their guide, the seasoned divers begin scouring the ocean floor. But days later, there's still no sign of the legendary vessel. As the search drags on, Clifford realizes that over the course of nearly three centuries, the ocean currents may have carried away the widow's remains. Water's very turbulent, and we had to factor that in when we were looking for the ship. Clifford's quest continues for two years, leaving his team exhausted and their situation looking bleak. We bet the farm that we were going to find this shipwreck. Then we were running out of money. We were, could barely put fuel in the boat. You know, we were you know, really struggling to make ends meet. So will Clifford's mission succeed? Or will the Witta Galley remain lost beneath the waves forever? Nineteen eighty-four, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. 
underwater explorer Barry Clifford has nearly exhausted his funds in his quest for the wreckage of the legendary pirate ship, the Wittigalli. So will he find the famed vessel, or will its treasures be lost beneath the waves forever? Friday, July 20th, Clifford and his team set sail for what may be their final voyage. And the mood is grim. It was a challenge. I was wondering what the heck I was doing. After several hours at sea, Clifford's beeping sonar suddenly snaps him to attention. And when Clifford dives down, he spots something remarkable. A shimmering reflection on the ocean floor. I looked at it, and it was a coin. It was a, a four real Spanish coin. And it had 84 on it, 1684. Could this truly be the widow's final resting place? It wasn't until we found the ship's bell that said the widow galley on it when we had proved positive that we had indeed found the wreck. They eagerly continue to scour the depths. And buried in the sands is an abundance of riches, proving that the treasure of the widow galley was as vast as the legends foretold. We were finding thousands and thousands of coins and gold you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of treasure. It was like winning the Super Bowl, you know, times three. Although other buccaneers like Blackbeard and Captain Kidd are more famous, this find suggests that the Wittigalli's captain, Black Sam Bellamy, was in fact the wealthiest and most successful of any pirate throughout the annals of history. In the wake of the thrilling discovery, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts gives Barry and his team sole ownership of the historic find. But instead of selling the treasure, estimated to be worth up to $40 million, they keep the collection intact, eventually establishing the Witta Pirate Museum in Provincetown so that future generations can enjoy the incredible discovery. This is the only documented pirate treasure in the world. We have over 200,000 artifacts. Today, these silver coins serve as a rich reminder of a legendary shipwreck and the tireless hunt for its vast and priceless treasure. From a revolutionary rebel to an otherworldly encounter, a tenacious treasure hunter to a hair-raising heist. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. 